CSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show all about land, housing, economics, and more. Today in the program, something different. Instead of talking specifically and locally about stuff happening in the housing scene of the Bay Area, we're going very, very broad. We are talking about the entire economic system. We're talking about money. We're talking about currency. We're talking about uh, monetary systems, the modern monetary system, and more. Uh, versus other other crank theories, we have on uh, Emil Kuliev to talk all about MMT, different issues of currency, some discussions about Silvio Gassel. Uh, it's all over the board. It's a nice free-range conversation. Breaking in here, just one additional note. This was recorded over a month ago, so based upon the uh, dramatic changes brought by the coronavirus, uh, a lot of it is... Uh, seemingly out of date, but actually most of the things we talk about are uh, still broadly relevant and actually are now uh, uh, eerily prescient. So, but uh, yeah, let's let's get into things. So, uh, so welcome, Emil. Hi, uh, great to be here. Yeah, so let's talk about what's uh, going on here. Uh, so, you know, online and offline, Emil and I've been talking for a bit about you know money issues, uh, especially about like MMT, other a bit like heterodox ideas of money. Well, here's a big question. What is heterodox and orthodox today? Are we living in orthodox Keynesian world or, or not? Uh, but I guess like right now, it's like, you know, do you like, do you think it's important that most people like understand MMT and currency right now? Right. Uh, yeah, I think I think MMT is a good thing to understand, even if you don't completely un- like, you know, buy into it. Um, I think there's a lot of bad arguments that get made in the language of MMT. And you see this on Twitter a lot. Uh, you know, you, you, people will say things like, oh, e- even if you accept MMT, it doesn't actually change anything in terms of how we yeah. talk about things. And, uh, you know, that that's not that's not true. Uh, you so know. let's start from, from zero. What is modern monetary theory? Sure. In, in, um, let's say, can you get it under, under 10 words? Okay, that means I'm, you really got it simple. All right. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so MMT uh, is basically the understanding that if... Maybe not under ten words, but if if if, if the government, uh, if the U.S. dollar isn't tied to you know anything like gold or anything like that, then the government can spend as much as it wants, and the there's nothing like there's no actual constraint on government spending. And the real issue then people bring up usually is, well, then what do you do about inflation? And the MMT response is, inflation uh, is dealt with government taxation. Yeah, so I mean, I think you know, the, I, there's a lot of different levels where people respond to it. I think the kind of like base zero kind of strange level is like, oh, it's the magic money tree, right? Right. And people say it's like, oh, you think that everything is just you know fine if you start with the printing press, you pay for everything out of you know fake money, right? Because uh, I think people just you know generally, uh, this is kind of the the it, there's like this mindset of like running government like a business. It's like, it's unserious to do it this way. And this is kind of just, uh, this is not even really an argument. It's more just the fact that aesthetically they think it's goofy instead of writing it off. Right, right. Then there is, I think, the level two. And I, you hear, like, I think, like, uh, you know, uh, the the Matt's the all online, uh, you know, Matt Birding and Matt Iglesias right. both make different arguments. Like, it doesn't matter. Because, like, the thing is, right now we consider that you, uh, you know, 
you get money through taxes and then you spend money on stuff. And in MMT, it's you spend money on stuff out of nothing, but then you control inflation through taxes. Exactly. And if that's if that's the difference, like, okay, one is right. Is this important? Right. And and I think the question too is like, is it even better? Because I think you know, like uh, someone like Matt Iglesias is like, if you had to deal with inflation instead of through a, a government board, the Fed, but instead you deal with it through a politicized process of charging taxes, that sounds actually like it's going to be a disaster. Yeah, and there's probably some truth to that. Uh, I think there's right, a lot of truth yeah, to it. Uh, I mean, I think here's a, here's kind of uh, maybe uh, I, my my takeaway is right now the Fed is like, uh, you know, at least ostensibly a political organization. I think maybe all taxes should be inherently apolitical, but that's a very different kind of way to look at things. Uh, <laughs> uh, hmm. uh, <laughs> I mean, I think you just, you find out what the right way to, to handle inflation is. And in my mind, it's kind of funny how this, this leads to a world in which correct inflation and now like, uh, you know, uh, you know, action is also equivalent to highly progressive taxes. Sure, but then I guess my question is uh, in times where like inflation gets out of hand, like let's say stagflation of the 60s or 70s. Um, or Weimar Germany crazy sure, right. inflation. Yeah. Uh, if you have a set process that's like apolitical that with like specific rules uh, built in that, you know, takes care of inflation in some way, how does it react in those times? Like it, it, it still has to be some kind of a political process at that point, right? Like, Yeah, I, I guess the thing is if it's apolitical, it means it is it's you know dead hand running perfectly right. forever, right. and nothing nothing ever works like that. So right. it's kind of apolitical in the same way that the Fed is apolitical, but right. there's always fail safes. Right. So like you know the Fed's response to like the 2008 financial crisis is you know very much a political decision. I mean, and, look at Powell in the last you know 12 months sure. or more. I mean, Trump has been putting the the you know exactly the the screws on them. Exactly. So like I, I don't know if you know, taking the politics out of it is at all possible. No, uh, I, I don't think. I think you're right. right. It's more of a utopian kind of way to <laughs> right, look at right, it. Right. But everything is political. Right. Exactly. Um, but I, I think the, the the question is, I think a lot of people say it doesn't matter, and then I think there's a second thing of just people think anything to do with money is goofy, insofar as like it is always the realm of weird cranks, and I think on this. Uh, you know, we are correct and wise, but you have other monetary cranks such as like Bitcoin enthusiasts right, exactly. and gold bugs. And I think to most normal people, how do you know MMT is serious and gold bugs and, and crypto nerds are like are goofy? Uh, because I think if you don't really know what's up, they all sound, you know, all serious to an extent. Yeah, that, that that's that's a good point. And I, the way you can tell that gold bugs are a little uh, silly is that whenever you look at like even American history or like... English history, whenever, you know, the government currency is backed by gold or some other form of metal, in times of war, you'll see them get off the gold standard because they can't pay for the war, you know, just yeah. using the plain old way. And it takes about 10 to 15, maybe 20 years before they get back on it just to take care of things. So, like, we know, like, in times of financial panics or in times of, you know, need, like, during a war, gold standard doesn't solve, like, the problems that we face. And um, so, 
it is not a stable solution to anything. Like you can't do that. And the same thing with Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin, the fact that it's got a fixed supply and like it, it makes it makes in a lot of ways the same thing as you know the gold standard. And I mean, like, is it a currency? Because like in the last two years, it has gone up and down. Right. Like, Factors like twenty four <laughs> times or something. Which like, like, what do you want in currency? One of it is it should be stable. And Bitcoin is objectively a failure, right? Yeah, and and you know, I'm sure there's some people that pay, use it to pay for things on the internet, but yeah. for the most part, people that buy Bitcoin are just mostly using it as a store of value, and yeah, it's not being used as you know currency as you would want it to. What is the point of a currency? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, there's the usual definition with the you know it should be a, you know a means of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account. So it it. It, it you know okay we can talk about what each of those things mean, um, but I guess the main one out of all of those is uh, you know it, it has to be a means of exchange right so like yeah. if I want to come and uh, buy I don't know whatever you're selling like let's say uh, headphones or something uh, yeah um, I I could I could go into my stockpile of bananas and I can give you bananas you know in exchange right. for it uh, but like that's that's awkward right and uh, th- there has to be like uh, a coincidence of once if we want to be able to just you know barter right yeah. uh physical goods so we usually use um uh you know currency is just like a lubricant that allows all of us to uh exchange goods um without having to worry about okay is this actually what i want because everybody yeah. wants currency and i think that's funny it's like there is like all these different uh you know, different usage. I think that the main two, what was the third again? It's like, it's a mean of exchange, I'd say like a store of value. Or, and a unit of account. Well, what's the difference between a store of value and a unit of account? Uh, a unit of account is just, uh, the way I understand it, at least, is that uh, it's just a way of uh, measuring. Um, a store of value just means that... It, but if you're exchanging, you need to, me- you need to value, uh, measure it too or have a... Right, but... Uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. So like, what, what what can count as a unit of account but not a... a yeah. A, yeah, so... Um, Maybe like uh, treasury bonds. Maybe <laughs> like, mm. I'm not sure if that's. Uh, I haven't really. Yeah. Thought to do it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think the other two, I think, were more much more orthogonal. Right. And it's interesting to say, can you split this up? Because you have on one hand, you know, a unit of exchange and a store of value. Uh, I would say that Bitcoin, for instance, is something which is 100 percent a store <laughs> right. of value. And awful for a means of exchange. It's not stable. It's not useful. And on and like the transaction costs in running this distributed ledger are like it, it uses so much electricity. Like this right. is, you could not really be worse as a means of exchange. Right. So like there's there's usually, you know, people talk about how uh, if you just look at the energy usage of like Bitcoin mining yeah. and just uh, doing the all the, you know, the checksums, it uses up more electricity than like the entire country of Ireland. Yeah, and, and like, okay, so now flip it on its head. What if you had something which was a good means of exchange but not a good store of value? Uh, that was that would actually be a very interesting, right? You know, instrument. And, right. You know, this kind of goes into. You can look at this a couple of things. There is, you know, people like Silvio Gassel have in the past introduced the idea that currency should rot like potatoes. You should have currency that actually it's good to trade, but actually it's bad to hold. Uh, and, uh, you know, also, if you're like in an inflationary environment, even Weimar Germany or something, it was it reached an extreme, which is you didn't want to hold on to currency. So everyone immediately wanted to switch it out to goods because it was a terrible store of value. Right. 
you could say that that was not the best environment. They overdid it at the very least. <laughs> but uh, it did, in fact, uh, you know, work in one of the two ways only. I think it broke down both ways eventually because it's just so, so, so bad. Right. But you could, you know. But so so that's one thing that I think I, that is important to talk about, like hyperinflation, and we the way we usually think about it is usually look at like Weimar Germany or Zimbabwe, yeah, or um, you know Argentina or whatever. Um, it scares people. It scares people, and it should scare people. But you know the, the usual explanation of it is that you know these governments just came in and spent a ton of money, and uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think. I don't really know everything in Zimbabwe, but looking at it from afar, it looked like they had a real moron as a treasurer. Right. And this person was like just literally running like a, a pyramid scheme with their own currency. And it just was, it was a disaster. Yeah. Weimar Germany, I feel it's like less of like uh, incompetence as much as the fact they had the, such a terrible agreement with uh, making real payments uh, that they just were like desperate to do anything to kind of just get out of it, right. and hyperinflating the currency was like weirdly almost rational. Right. I mean, if if a hyper if the only problem with hyperinflation is that the government can't stop you know printing money, um, in a competent you know government, there's a very simple solution, which is you know you would just stop printing money. Yeah. Um, and, and like the fact that they weren't doing that, and the fact that like this keeps happening in other part, uh, you know parts of the world, and weirdly never happens in the United States, despite how much money we spend. I mean, the uh, worst we had was the seventies, right? And it wasn't that bad, right? It was bad, but it was manageable. It made people very unhappy. Let's be clear, right? But it it wasn't, uh, you know, Abelard talks a lot about this, but you know, it. Uh, because it's accompanied by uh, unemployment, you can't say that the problem is too much spending, right? Because unemployment by itself means that, yeah. um, you know, there's too little spending. So there's something special about stagflation that sets it apart from other kinds of hyperinflation that we see in, like, Weimar Germany, Yeah, right? I mean, the, the class before stagflation, uh, the Phillips curve was always the way people thought, which is, like, it's a trade-off. You right. either have inflation or you have unemployment. Pick your poison, and you know unemployment's bad. Uh, right. Inflation isn't really that bad by itself, so choose inflation. But in the seventies, we had both, right. which at once was a bummer and, and belied this classic uh, trade-off. What what is the like the traditional explanation of like the Phillips curve? Like how do people how do people make sense of the Phillips curve? I mean, I think the Phillips curve is a formalization of some of the. Uh, some of the ideas that Keynes came up with with general theory. Really? Because uh, I, I always thought of it as like just a uh, like an empirical observation. And like, I, I don't know if there's like a building blocks to Phillips curve. I mean, I think I think people because I hear like the things like, you know, Keynes, you know, Keynes, Keynes, I always say it wrong. Uh, Keynes came out with the uh, with the general theory in 36 or whatever. Right. And it's like for a couple of years, like Paul Samuels is like, oh, to be young and alive when the when the general theory came out. It took like two years before anyone could really kind of make conclusive kind of like, what is the new theory this implies? And I think the Phillips curve is one of the things, which is just the thing, like, you know, Keynes's general theory is not the gospel truth. It is one useful model. Right. And I believe like, what are the building blocks of it? I'm willing to say like, it comes out of, you know, the general theory. I don't know if that's really that useful, but it's, uh, uh, I think it's part of the reason of saying like stagflation 
in the mind of economists and the public, really kind of make people say like, oh, you know, Keynesianism is besmirched. It doesn't always work. It isn't like this this grand uh, system to always keep uh, full employment, which is why you started getting a lot of uh, unfortunate tendencies from like, you know, uh, you know, Volcker shocks, you know, right. to uh, the, the Nairu, the natural uh, anti-inflationary rate of unemployment and all this. Uh, so, like, I think that's the thing. Like, it's like you now have all these new epicycles of like, oh, yeah, we agree. You know, work with the money supply. But let's, you know, let's make sure we don't get too goofy with it. Yeah, I guess the, I'm, I'm still stuck on that, though. Right? Like, I, I've never gotten a good answer on this, which is like if if we had full employment – like, why would we expect that to cause inflation? Like, I, I, is there? A- I, I, th- I think that is. It's. I've looked up everyone who's like you know that I've seen like defending Nairu, and it's always just kind of car- like a cranky it, idea. It's right? a cargo cult kind yeah, of thing, yeah. but it was the standard orthodoxy through the Reagan years and beyond. Right, and which is, I think, in my mind, it's it's very funny. It's like we talk about like cranks and all this. If you're a crank that makes kind of uh, privileged, you know, uh, kind of big business happy. That becomes orthodoxy. If right. you're a crank at something which is, I think, more redistributive, more progressive, then that tends to be kind of written off by the serious folks. Right. Um, why does this matter? Here's something that uh, just as recording today, uh, Pete Buttigieg was saying, uh, the time has come for my party, the Democrats, uh, to get a lot more comfortable with owning the issue of cutting the deficit. It's not fashionable in progressive circles to talk too much about the debt. Uh, I'd say that's true. I think it's it's because, in my mind, to be a deficit hawk is at once incorrect, unuseful, and inherently a right wing idea. Right. What are your thoughts on like what does it mean to care about the debt and be and, and to be a deficit hawk? Because that isn't necessarily the same, but they're connected. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess the way I think about it is, you know, the usual attack on the debt is well. It, it, if you don't pay off the debt now, you know our children will pay off for it, right? Like yes. And the proper way to think about it is like, you know, there's the debt, and uh, by itself, it doesn't matter because the government will always be able to pay off whatever interest that it, uh, you know, has well, what, on the what debt. What is the debt? It's not like it's a dragon. It's not like there's a monster. It means it's it's a number written on some sort of ledger. Exactly. What does that mean? Like, like what it means is basically just, uh, how much, uh, savings we all have as a result of government spending, right? Like whatever the government spends and it doesn't tax ends up in our bank accounts. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Stephanie Kelton says this a lot where she says, you know, their red ink is our blank ink. So like we should be, looking at the debt not as just like a thing that the government has to pay off but as a, a total of all of our national savings yeah and people are actually rebranding national debt as national savings yeah yeah and that's I a think, very sexy way of, yeah exactly yeah um and um yeah so like you know when when people judge talks about uh you know we have to pay off the national debt he's effectively just saying oh we need to like lower our Total national savings, which is why it's so scary. Like whenever people talk about paying, uh, you know, having a debt, they're yeah. scared of it, you know, having to eventually pay it off. Here is something I think this is really funny. Henry George, uh, namesake of this show, I uh, was writing uh, 1880s or something, talking about the national debt that rose during the Civil War. He says the government presses struck off promises to pay. 
They could not print ships, cannon, arms, tools, food, or clothing. Uh, we'd not borrow from other countries or from prosperity. Our bonds not begin to go to Europe till the close of the war. It's actually all domestic stuff. But effectively, uh, it says, like, people from one generation can no more borrow from the people of sub- subsequent generation than we who live in this planet can borrow from the inhabitants of another planet, another solar, solar system. We're, like, really what happened in the Civil War, for in this case, is we needed stuff. So instead of just, like, appropriating it from people who had stuff, we made IOUs. And this was like passed along to the families of the people who had this stuff. Right. Compare this to, and this is the case they made. Uh, we, you know, we did not offer IOUs when we did not sh- uh, shrink from taking from wife and children their only breadwinner. To draft, you know, human bodies to die in your war <laughs> is fine, but to take stuff from people is not. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Wow, yeah. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of weird, but like that kind of says, like, what is the national debt? It's just a, it's a big pile of IOUs, which tend to go in a regressive manner to people who historically have had the most stockpile of wealth. Right. Um, yeah, and... Um... <laughs> and, for that, and if you're going to say we're going to pay it off, it really means we're going to have an upward redistribution of wealth to the most, to the most uh, privileged... That should be one of our primary goals as a society, which is like, I would say, no, let's not do that. Right. No, yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> and I, what, what that does, though, also at the same time is that, like, if he has, like, I mean, I don't really know how many policy positions he's come up with, but if he has any so, kind of- To my booty judge here. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, you know, for example, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both want to cancel all student debt. If- He's going to do anything like that, right? Like a statement like that where he says we have to worry about the de- national debt uh, seriously like ties his hand. And this is like what's tied, you know, the hand, hand of Congress also, the, yeah. you know, PAYGO, uh, where, you know, any kind of spending increase has to be matched by a matching uh, revenue increase. Yeah. Um, and this like seriously constrains what we can do politically for no like good reason that we can see or like anyone can articulate and you talk about like it's it's very funny how you uh how it's very arbitrary but not really arbitrary when this is invoked as you said like when wars are happening it's like everything goes out the window and just general like how do we spend on the military we never when you talk about oh you know trump runs and expands the military budget he's not pressed how are you going to pay for it right but when like i think warren sunk herself in a lot of ways by listening to the media Tisk tisking her on how are you going to pay for Medicare for all? And she came up with this very complicated, not not great uh, taxation plan for how do you pay for Medicare for all? And really, you could just say, like, you know, we're going to pay for it. You know, we don't need to justify it with tax increases. We will deal with the consequences. And that's it's it's I think it's inherently uh, kind of you know conservative to worry about taxes first. Maybe that's, I mean, I think true conservatism, which is like, let's not change stuff until we really get our feet settled. It's it's an ideology. I, I understand sure. it. But it's not what the progressive wing should be fighting for. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, like, I think I, AOC has kind of internalized a lot of this when, you know, she gets asked about it. She's like, how are you going to pay for, uh, you know, the Green New Deal? Yeah. And I, 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 you know, her answer is just like, you know, how do we pay for anything? And I think that's like what we need to, um, you know, embrace as the left, uh, you know, yeah. just like 
these kinds of ideas where like, oh, like the national debt by itself, like we can't really know what the, you know, the negative consequences of having a huge national debt is, especially because like we're at like what, 160% of the, you know, annual GDP in terms of what our uh, debt is. And like Japan has hit like 230% and maybe they can keep going even more, you know, and like, you know, this has been going on for at least 20 years, if not more. Um, And everybody else that was like, you know, crying and telling us that this is going to lead to apocalypse. Nothing has happened so far. And it's the worst that can happen, as I can tell, is like, you know, we'll have some inflation. And it seems like we can just deal with that when it happens by increasing taxes. Yeah, I think that's that's the big, I think the big dividing line, which is, do you base your actions upon theory and your theory is perfect and you deal with it? Or do you kind of say, nobody knows what's real right? and you muddle through? I think this is kind of essentially what a lot of like the functional finance paradigm is. Exactly. It's kind of like you pull levers, you push levers, you deal with stuff. And I would say compared to this, the people who feel like they have their own perfect kind of classic theory about how things work have been repeatedly just like just wrong 100% about stuff like you talk about like quantitative easing and the ease in after 2008 so many people bet their reputation on the fact if you do this you're going to get hyperinflation that you cannot control don't even do it and the truth is at the levers you pulled didn't even start doing any of this yeah i yeah, I remember that, and like I was so scared of uh, like putting any of my money in the stock market back then because the theory, the traditional theory of like just like pumping money, like it just feels so true. Like, of course, if there's if there's a higher quantity of supply of money, of course the value of the dollar is going to go down. Um, and you know, we've been doing this for ten years, and the stock market has been you know doing really well for the past ten years, and. It's it's it. None of it really makes sense given what people were predicting back then. Like what the what, what all of this would lead to. Well, I mean, actually, in a lot of sense, uh, it it has been a bad time to hold on to cash. The value of holding on to raw cash <laughs> has been decreasing. Like you're barely like. But in the truth, where do you put it? Even if you put it into a savings account, you put it into like bonds, you put it into like anything. They're actually very low rates right. of interest. Right. We're almost near zero interest bound. Uh, as opposed to like buying securities, that's like the that's that's one of the smarter places. Buy securities, buy real assets, real like like real estate and stuff. And these, if you're getting the right kind of stuff, have been doing very well in the last uh, ten years. Yeah, it, it does feel like a bubble, though. Right? <laughs> like it does feel like uh, all the money that has been like pumped into the economy just like goes and sits in the, you know into these. Stocks. It, uh, I'm not. I mean, I'm just speculating here. I have no idea what is actually happening. And I think okay. So here is like uh, like the the million mile view. What is what is money? What is wealth? You know, it's kind of like p- the classic theory is you know money is a real thing that we invest into stuff. <laughs> and like the banks, it's like you invest your money and you know you buy stocks and this goes into investment and banks invest. But in reality. Like money is more of a social relation that right. kind of that kind of coordinates a lot of different individual actions, and you know where is the investment going from all this this money that is it's making us do stuff. You know, people are working and getting accounts and discharging their accounts. You know, it is a grand network of of flows between each other. But like, what is like 
to what to what end <laughs> you know right um i i have my own opinions but i kind of like what what do you frame it as yeah money is just um very like strongly tied into this concept of like the idea of debt right like if you have money if you have like 10 dollars of money in your pocket what that means is somebody out there just owes you $10 worth of things. Now, you, you know, it doesn't... If you're, if you're on a shipwrecked island and you have money, it's, it's worthless. It's worthless, you, you absolutely need, worthless. You need, exactly. like, it's, you need other people. Right. You need other people. And even in, like, you know, if it was, like, two people on an island, right? Like, you wouldn't usually use money to, like, settle debts between each other. You're usually just like, okay, I'll be the person yeah. that... Like, money is necessary when it's, like, you know... You can have like a family say like, "Oh yeah, we have family bucks." Right. And these are chores. I think they never really make it, you know, uh, to like the logical conclusion of having like financial markets, options trading, and all this. <laughs> uh, you could, you absolutely yeah, could. You could, yeah. Uh, but I think it's it's mostly it's convenient uh, when you're dealing with people you don't know. Exactly. Um, but you're connected in some way. It's usually you wouldn't if you saw an alien, you wouldn't offer them, you know, U.S. dollars <laughs> and imagine that means something. Right. Or like you know, if if someone from I don't know where I'm from, Azerbaijan came to you and gave you Azerbaijani money, you know that that would be worthless to you, right? Like, is it local? It it has like lots of oil fields on it. So. That's cool. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so like uh, it, it has value because you know what it is, and you know you know that other people will accept it. So if I try to give you ten dollars for you know, I don't know, uh, you know your your bananas yeah. or something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, then uh, you know it has value, so you'll accept it. And you know, who, uh, I, I I like the analogy that Ayn Rand gives about this, um, where he uh, talks about the code check. Um, he says, if I go to a code check and check my code in, and they give me a, a like a token that yeah. you know says, uh, you know, this is uh, redeemable for one code at the code check. Yeah, um, I could conceivably like come to you and just say, hey, uh, you know. Can you do you know this for me, or like can you give me you know your uh, shoe or something, right? Yeah. And in exchange, I'll give you this like coat-backed token. And the coat checker didn't you know have to earn this token from anybody, yeah. right? Like they just like made it and just like gave it to you, right? Yeah. Um, and you could conceivably, if you wanted to, like pay somebody else with that uh, coat token um, it's kind of something's made out of nothing right you know <laughs> and like we we all trust that you know this thing's worth <laughs> uh what it is because um you know there's it's it's backed by a code at the code check so like if they're willing to keep it for as long as you know you know possible as possible um you know somebody could eventually come back and say hey uh here's a here's a token that i got for the coat can i get my coat back please but let's say Let's say that Moss ate your coat, and the entire time it wasn't backed by anything. Right, you know? right, right. Still, people were exchanging stuff. The economy grew exactly. in this way, even if it wasn't backed. Exactly. A lot of people are like, people are obsessed with convertibility. I mean, I know people <laughs> like gold bugs feel the fact like there is, it's this weird, almost religious aspect that like when, like there's value imbued in stuff. And I, I there's one thing I really enjoy reading Sylvie Cassell is saying like, this is like goofy, spooky, like religious, you know, garbage to say that there is like an inherent value in currency. It's like, no, this is just like, yeah, it's, so like it's useful or not. Yeah. So like in the code example, yeah. The, you know, they, they would say, you know, if, if it wasn't backed by a code, right. Yeah. Uh, then they would argue that it doesn't have any value. Right. But, you know, the U.S. dollar isn't backed by anything and the U.S. dollar 
every day comes and pays people in U.S. dollars. Yeah. Uh, you know, either it's your you know social security check or you know Medicare or like you know or just like paying uh, military contractors, and <laughs> you know like it's all paid in U.S. dollars, and we all accept it, and we know it's not backed by anything. Um, and you know, MTRs would argue the reason it has money the value is because at the end of the day, when it comes to paying your taxes, you have to pay it in U.S. dollars. You don't have to pay it in you know gold. You don't pay it in bitcoins. Yeah. You pay it in dollars, and that's why everybody wants dollars. Uh, I forget if, which I think it was one of the MMTers was like had the analogy of let's say you're at a party with somebody and I want to make you feel like my business cards are worth something and hold on to it. It's like, well, how do I do that? Like they could look nice, they could be you know pretty, they could be like Bitcoin, they could have like crypto right. back. It's like, but you don't care. It's just a stupid business card. But if I have a bunch of people with guns that are going to lock the doors and say that you can't leave until you pay me. Uh, 20 business cards you suddenly really care about yeah, my business you're cards all, you're all unemployed now and you have yeah. to come and work for me for my business cards right? yeah I mean it's kind of I mean this kind of activates the anarchist part of me it's like it's kind of scary that <laughs> yeah. like it's like the entire economy does involve a large amount of coercion to yeah. function but hey we live in a society yeah there's more to that analogy, actually. Um, I don't know if you... This is Mosler, by the way. And, Mosler, yeah. yeah. And uh, the way he phrases it also is like, let's say there's 50 of you in the room, right? Um, and each person needs a business card to leave, right? Um, if I only give out 45 business cards, then regardless of what all of you do, right? Like the same person could come and work for me like five times for five business cards and then yeah. you know, give it to four other people, the ones that he doesn't need. Um, regardless of what you do, because I'm going to 45 and I require 50, five people are unemployed. They're not going to be able to get out of the room. Yeah. Right. So like that's the analogy for like understanding, okay, how does total spending lead, uh, you know, inadequate total spending lead to unemployment? Um, and I think, I think that's a very powerful idea. And yeah. like we usually don't think of um, unemployment in those terms. Like we don't think of it as, oh, there's enough government spending. We usually, you know. Or like the conservative uh, impulses to blame the individual, but there's like a very systemic yeah. problem when it comes to unemployment. There's, I mean, I feel it's weird. Like it, you read more about like pr- like pre-Keynesian times and people would deal un- like uh, with unemployment in a really deflationary environment. It felt more like the plague came. It felt like something which is external, real. I mean, I think like you know, Marx would write about deflationary crises as being like kind of the logic of the great you know uh, spirit or something. Like right. That. Uh, but like, it also reminds like there's an like, episode of the uh, television show Eagleheart uh, in which they like he enters a small town where it's like it's like everyone's unemployed, and he finds the reason is because uh, no one's getting their shoes shined. Uh-huh. And because like they don't have this like nice pep in their step because of their shoes shined, everyone is you know uh, like unemployed. But they get their shoes shined, everyone like suddenly is back in business and everything is booming. Uh, like you look like in practice, like there's like this story of like the small town of Vorgel, Germany, or something. I think it was Germany. Uh, and uh, like in the Great Depression, they had like fifteen hundred of two thousand people unemployed. They made up their own municipal script right. that depreciated the same way that Gasell said. They paid everybody for, for for city spending through it, and suddenly everyone was employed again. Right. And this is the outcome you want. And you look at like you know, I think it's unfortunate. You like look in the U.S. There's a lot of unemployment localized and like opiate you know addicted you know heavily you know like there's such a disparity between Silicon Valley like where they, they can't stock the jobs enough in a place like you know Steubenville. Or like Martin's right. Ferry, all these places are like are really unemployed, and you you kind of want to give them ways to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. And like 
And I feel like currency really is the magic that makes that happen. Yeah. Um, so wait, what happened with the Germany example? So what happened to that city? I think well, they did it for two years, and I think then, I think actually it was Austria, but if it was Austria or uh, yeah, it was Austria. Because I thought, uh-huh. oh, yeah. What was something bad that happened in 1933 uh, having to do with Austria? Uh, it was the <laughs> fact that they banned municipal uh, script. So they actually they cut their out, their experiment I at the see. time. But I think I they see. actually were in a better place by the time it ended. I see. Uh, but, yeah, I think it was it was from the top down they banned it. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I see. it was out of their hands. I see. Uh, but I think they recovered. So it's, it's interesting. But, like, there are weird things. Like, uh, and I think most of the times they're goofy. Ithaca, New York, has Ithaca hours. Ithaca hours are pegged to $10 of currency, and it's meant to say, hey, why don't you pay other Ithaca people to buy Ithaca things, and we'll have our nice economy. But here's a problem. Like, it's dumb. Like, why would I want Ithaca hours if it's just worse than, like, U.S. dollars? Well, what some cities, though, do is that um, if if you're a local business, like, the city uh, incentivizes you to, like, Give cheaper prices in the local currency instead of the. Yes, uh, that's a real that's a real thing now. Right, right, right. So like, there's a yeah, they give you an incentive to buy the local currency. Yeah, I think like uh, like around the Stanford campus or something. I've been using like been a student here in a while, but they like cardinal dollars, and like I think all the local cafeterias and cafe like they would charge lower prices for that. That's because I think actually it does make more sense if you can have like just this localized currency that's being charged around the thing. There's 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 efficiencies that come with that. Right. Uh, and you can kind of control it more even. Right. Uh, but I, here's the thing, too. What if Ithaca started charging property taxes and, and you must pay in Ithaca hours? Yeah, I, that's a really interesting idea. And, <laughs> yeah, you talk a lot about this where you talk about how, like, the land prices um, get out of hand when it's, you know, denominating U.S. dollars in Silicon Valley, right? And, you know, in order to – yeah, can you expand on that? Like, So in order to uh, rein it down, you think that the local currency – uh, being taxed would help with that somehow. Well, I think my goofy idea is the fact that we, like, we're at the mercy of the Fed. And I think the the thing is, I don't think there's, like, if there is such a thing as, like, over full employment, I think Silicon Valley is that. You know, we literally, we have more jobs than people who can afford to live here. So, like, I think we are too hot right i think a place like you know martin's ferry ohio is too cold right the and what are the levers we have to deal with this you could talk about interstate fiscal transfers you could talk about but in practice no one does that Uh so we just have one lever which is like uh fed you know interest rates and what it means is we get hotter and hotter and hotter and uh you know it's not enough to end unemployment elsewhere and i think we need to kind of deal with geographical separations and I think one way to deal with it is allow us in the Bay Area to kind of manage our own monetary policies at a more local level. This would be very goofy. But it goes to a bigger question. This is the same problem as the euro had with Germany and Greece. And uh, in practice, like, here's a question. A lot of very smart people designed this. I would say it was trivially doomed because this was almost obvious to happen. Like. Right. Like it's like, am I wrong to say the euro and like the the fact was such a uh, like a uh, an unoptimal uh, currency zone was just dumb? Yeah, no, uh, like the euro like didn't give any power. Uh, like the the ECB, right? The Greeks didn't have any power in the ECB in how yeah. the euro gets printed or anything like that. <laughs> and when the you know the Greek crisis happened and the Greeks weren't able to pay off their debt, 
um, like they're not able to pay their debt because they don't have uh, you know the, the the government doesn't tax people right or like I, I'm not entirely sure exactly yeah. the nature of the problem but like there's a like a systematic problem where like Greece can't do anything more than um, it has already to pay off the debt and like this debt was never going to be paid off yeah. and in order instead of like restructuring the system they just uh, you know put more and more like austerity programs on Greece to like and at the end of the day all it does is just like you know impose cruelty on the Greek people I mean like, it feels like what, what do you want you want everyone to kind of be productive happy doing stuff but it feels like they're like they're at the mercy of the company store yeah <laughs> which is you know more or less you know Germany right and like this isn't like this isn't good. You should give people power at every level to help themselves out. And like Greece was just, you know, maybe they were uh, profligate in some way in the past, and they deserve to have some sort of come up. It's I think that's dumb. But like at any case, at this point in time, people are not in a good way, and you really want to impose austerity on top of them. Yeah, and like on top of the austerity, they even had even like goofier things where they would like change the like some of the regulations around like. You know things like uh, like what counts as like fresh milk, like they want to increase that from like four days to like ten days, and <laughs> so just like lowering quality of life. Well, the the reason for that was that like for example, like Dutch milk took like more than four days to get to Greece, so in order to be competitive on the you know the Greek grocery markets. It couldn't be labeled fresh, right? This feels like like colonies. This feels yeah, like colon- yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like the, the the eurozone basically effectively created this like system where like all these southern European countries were like dependent on yeah basically France and Germany, and uh, you know they could just enforce whatever rules they wanted to, and yeah, it, it's it's a yeah. It's a broken system, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I was reading just more history. Like, I like when people can like feel stuff out like locally. Uh, I was talking about off mic about this. Alberta, nineteen thirty-eight, yeah. was trying to copy like the Vorgel experiment, and they had the the kind of weird social credit party took over. They tried to say, okay, now we can actually. It was like it was like Andrew Yang stuff. They said yeah. we're going to give everyone in Alberta money, and we're going to get out of this depression like by ourselves with our own currency. But because I think there's all these ideas about money must be convertible, they instead cut back on this. Okay, we're going to do some road projects, pay out-of-work farmers, and they paid it with a local currency completely backed with Canadian dollars, which is like they didn't even expand the money yeah, supply. Yeah, yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs> so it's like they, like, I just feel that's just, they didn't do it. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, as Yeah, and I... I, I just think we need more clarity. I just I love the fact like there's like this it's it is a mindset. Money must be backed with something. Uh, and like I think uh, this was like Silver Gazelle again was writing like writing about the German Thaler at the times like you this is convertible. You can go into a bank and show them a Thaler and they will give you uh, you know actual silver uh, if it's a paper Thaler and all this. Uh, and he says like this is wrong. Instead we should say if you go to a bank with uh, you know a Thaler. Uh, we will whip you four times because you shouldn't do that. You know, it's 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 a thaler. Wait, you know? what? Wait, I don't, I don't think I understand that. <laughs> well, I'm just saying it's like we say like you should be rewarded for calling our bluff on our currency. Oh, okay. But instead, <laughs> instead of being rewarded, you should be punished. You know, we all have an obligation as citizens to keep up the fiction that currency is good, uh, which is like it's good as long as it keeps up. It's yeah. wait, but I, okay, so 
let's say I start giving you, you know, Emil IOUs, right? Like, you know, sure. let's say you scratch my back and I, you know, I give you Emil, 10 Emil bucks. Is this on the, is this a crypto? <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, and tomorrow you want to, you come back to me and you want to like redeem the value of the, the Emil bucks. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, I don't, I'm sorry, like you're SOL and uh, yeah. I don't, I don't really want to do anything for you. Like, there needs to be some kind of like a like an enforcement mechanism, right? Like, in- well, I think there's an enforcement mechanism in the fact that we know each other personally. So sure. if I I can hold you accountable through various social uh, interactions, I can say, oh, this guy's a deadbeat. <laughs> you know, it's like I can, like I can. Uh, but like, if we're strangers, then you are SOL, right? And I think that's the question: is effectively in a large global sized economy, who has credit? And I mean, for better or for worse, the United States, you know, dollar is a global reserve currency because it's very unlikely that the United States will disappear tomorrow, largely because they have military bases in every, right, right, like, right. every country of the world. Right, exactly. <laughs> so like, that's kind of a dismal conclusion, but I think it's <laughs> I think it's accurate. I think what really like in any case, you imagine if there is a global, you know, trade organization this is like when uh, you know Keynes was talking about designing the Bretton Woods Agreement. Instead of saying, "Oh, the U.S. backed with gold is the reserve currency," uh, he wanted to create a fictional reserve currency called the Bancor, right. which is trade back and forth. And like, yeah, that's that's a pleasant fiction. It's backed by the fact that we have a world trade overseer. Is that backed with the with the sword? <laughs> Maybe. Um, I mean, I think in a sense it is. I think it has yeah. to be. Yeah, yeah. Because um, like, yeah. if you're a pirate, it's like, no, I'm not following it. I'm doing my own trade right. organization. Right. It's like, well, you can try. Yeah, David Graeber talks about like Madagascar. I don't know. I don't know if you remember this, where he talks about like when the French first showed up and the uh, you know the people of Madagascar uh, just didn't recognize the French like currency. Sure. Right? And they didn't have markets or any kind of currency of their own at all. They just like lived, uh, you know. Yeah. primitively um and what the french did basically said oh like instead of like enslaving them or like taking their stuff they said we just need we're going to tax you we're going to take like francs from you and in order to get francs you need to um like basically uh do stuff for us right like you need to come and get it from us and at the end of the day we'll come and like tax it away from you and that basically like creates markets basically that kind of uh, it was done by force, though, right? Yes, it was. It was done by force, but yeah, like because it sounds like a bad deal if you're not getting anything out. Of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and you know, I think what like gold bugs or like you know these like libertarians like kind of miss is that like currency generally tends to be um, like a result of like a legal institution and like it's provided by the government and. You know, markets wouldn't exist without currency, right? And currency wouldn't exist without a government. So, like, to want to uh, abolish the government, like, inherently means that you are, like, against markets in a way and, like, currency in a way because the government kind of, like, ensures that those things, like, remain in place. And you see this over and over, basically, um, in different, like, parts of the world where, like, before currency, like the way people um, like interact with each other is basically a gift exchange economy. Yeah, um, there is no barter. Like, like the barter is just a myth that like anthropologists have been. Uh, the, the the Adam Smith thing, yeah, like as as propagated by Scrooge McDuck, yeah, uh, is the fact that barter used to be the way that people traded. 
Right. And like, yeah, this is just not true. It's not true. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in a way they were a small state. Like, and it's kind of like, what is this? What, how does the state have credit? It's because you're the boss of your tribe or whatever is they have credit. Yeah. So it's like, okay, if they say, if they keep a personal ledger of who owes who, good enough for me. It's like how a family works. Exactly, you know, it's like, yeah. who does the dishes this week? You know, it's like, oh, you're behind. It's like, well, who says so? It's like, well, I'm, I'm the, I'm the boss of the family. You know, it's not, maybe it's not great, but it's at least, it at least works. Right. Yeah. Um and I I think like at the end of the day, like where this like power to like issue currency and spend it comes from is basically, you know, a political question at the end of the day, right? Like you have to talk about like should a you know, king be able to just like print whatever money that he wants to and just like be able to yeah. spend it. And uh I I think to me that makes a lot of sense, right? Like just being able to say, Oh, a, a king that has, you know, sovereignty over a, a kingdom, right? Like, uh, should they just be able to come in? Like, when they tax you, what does that mean? What that means is uh, basically they're coming in just, like, by force, forcing you to... <laughs> I mean, libertarians yeah. are, like, right in this way, that, like, you know, taxation is, in a sense, like, theft, but it, it, they can do that because they have power over the rest of us right well there's there's two things going on here which is one is you know taxation is theft the other hand is property is also defined by the the government you're living under right and in that sense the property is also theft right so i think i mean i think ideally if you're kind of like you know it's like you know what you should you should cancel these out if you have property you pay for it through taxes you know and if you don't maybe you don't if you really want to live like a you know like a f- animal in the woods like we shouldn't tax the squirrels, you know. When you say property, do you specifically mean land property or like? Well, lands. I think of all things that you say the government defines. Like if I say like, okay, I've now, you know, I'm I'm collecting my earwax and making sculptures. You can say like, okay, I kind of own that because I'm like holding it in my pocket. It's gross, but uh-huh. it's like comes from me. Uh, if I'm like, you know, catching a fish and you know, it's like I'm holding. It's like, well, I, you know, I caught the fish. Who's going to say they? You know, it seems like it's mine. But if I like say, oh, I have a land deed to this <laughs> location of land, it's like that's goofy. Like it's like who defines that? Yeah. And it's going to be some local, you know, government that says like, oh, we proclaim that we have a social interaction that this person owns this location in space and can actually uh, do things uh, in relation to this location. Like that is necessarily the result of a government. Right. So. I would say, uh, insofar as property is theft, uh, different kinds of property are more like theft than others, <laughs> and land deeds are the most like theft of any. May IP is equally, but like it's like it's all that's that's well, okay, that's a completely different yeah discussion. But well, okay, okay, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Land, but like, what about like a factory? Like, do you think like? Well, I mean, that's the thing. People say, like, uh, the old Obama. It's like, you didn't build that, you know? It's like, you didn't just, uh, in some sort of, like, ANCAP dream world, walk down from the mountain uh, and just all by yourself, you know, build a factory. Usually, you've gotten a lot of help through social institutions, through different, uh, you know, markets, institutions that are open to you, through different public goods that allow you. The fact that labor markets you're actually, like, using are created by the government just as much and, and adjudicated and regulated. Like, you you are not an island. And for that sense, uh, I think it's right to say that you at least, to a, a partial extent, don't own that factory. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's I think it's the argument. At <laughs> right. Least. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. Uh, but but uh, I think the thing is like, boy, land is the stuff that like you own the least. You know, pay up, buddy. Uh, <laughs> which it's very frustrating to the people. It's like, oh, well, all we need to do is change the monetary system entirely. And I think in practice, people get spooked. You know, I think people who don't understand currency are very, very scared of change. Uh, and it's very hard to transition. I mean, do you think do you think that's true? And do you think well, stuff can be done about it? When you say we should change up the monetary system, like what, what, what kinds of things are are you talking about? Like libertarians or like? Are, well, I'm talking about okay. Let's. I'm saying more practically the fact like right now at the federal level you have deficit hawks who feel like yeah. we need to have a balanced budget. We should have a constitutional amendment for a balanced budget. Like it's it's kind of that's a very common thing to believe. Yes. Uh, and like, why? Like, like, how do we get out of that mindset other than just telling like you can actually try to demonstrate like in practice? Look how like, you know, the last 10 years have gone with quantitative easing uh, and the lack of inflation started with the CPI in that time. Uh, but like, it seems like if you even have a Pete Buttigieg type who say like, it's like, oh, the national debt is one of our biggest problems. Like, boy, what do you do about that? Like, is it just the fact our minds aren't... I mean, this is kind of like the LVT question, too. It's like, it's very hard to say, like, all you need to do is completely change your way of thinking, and it's so obvious. <laughs> like, it's like, it's 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 crossing a very big chasm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure, like, what we can do about that. I mean, I think the whole monetary thing is just really confusing to people because, like, it's so obfuscated. And, like, even the 2008 financial crisis, like, nobody really knows exactly what happened, and, like, nobody really knows... Uh, when I say nobody, I mean like you know most people, <laughs> yeah. most people paying attention, uh, like don't really know exactly what happened and like what caused it and what the Fed's response was. But a lot of it, like ultimately, I think like is a political decision and it gets uh, masqueraded as like a, a like a like a rational or like a logical thing and I think that's the thing that frustrates me the most like people like Buttigieg like just coming in and talking about this they're not saying anything like you know there's no content to what they're saying in the sense yeah. that like they're not outlining exactly what an issue is and there's like they're not outlining um, you know what they think will happen if we don't do this they're just saying oh we just need to do it because debts need to be paid off in general well, um, I think I think part of it is it's like this weird branding of the fact if you can go out there and say like, oh, no, you know, debts, you know, the national debt and deficits, that is not what serious people do. Serious people always keep a balanced budget like that is just like a self-propagating yeah. uh, thing. Like people say, oh, that's what serious people believe yeah. and, and like it's uh like for the same token, like took me a while back, like uh, better part of ten years ago, and Paul Ryan was first in the scene. It's like this guy is saying, "It's like we need to like pull up, you know, like tighten our tighten our belts. We need to actually suffer a lot to because you know uh, we need to be serious about stuff." It's like, it's like this guy must be serious because he's saying things which are unpopular and they would make people's lives worse. And no one says that unless they actually believe it. And realize, no, this guy actually just wants to make people suffer. Because he's a weird psycho. Uh, like, that's the thing. Like, sometimes, like, there's this weird cargo cult of, like, the fact, like, if it feels bad, it must be good for you. It's like, 
that isn't always true. Like, sure, like going on a diet and exercising can feel bad right. and it's good for you, but hitting yourself with a, a two by four <laughs> can feel bad, but it's not good for you. And having like high unemployment to keep the deficit down uh, can feel bad because it is awful for you. Don't do it, you know? Yeah. And I think it's just very weird that like people like have this kind of pain mentality, like, oh yeah, you got to hurt. <laughs> it's like, that's, I think, the grossest part of it. Yeah. And I, this is going to sound a little goofy, but the, us- the the way I like thinking about it is like if you, I don't know if you've ever played like a real time strategy game, like, I don't know, like Starcraft or like Cossacks or anything like that. I've seen people play it. Okay. So, yeah. But like in those games, you know, there's like natural resources that you have to like mine or like collect somehow. And, you know, you have these workers and you have to ensure that like, you, you know, you're trying to maximize your efficiency with like trying to, uh, you know, build as many soldiers as possible or whatever. Um, and in those games, like, it'd be ridiculous to think of it as like, um, oh, like, I should leave some of my workers, you know, idle or something because, you know, that's, you know, something along the lines of like an Nairi or something, right? Like, yeah, yeah. because that's just how it is. Like, I think the proper way to think about it is like, okay, what would make the most sense in terms of, like, efficiency? And... When money, like, enters into this because it's, like, this lubricant that we all use, like, to uh, ease all these, like, exchanges, we stop thinking of, like, okay, what are we actually doing at the end of the day, right? Like, what are – when people aren't working, that is a wasted, like, waste of people's time and we're, like, just – not doing the optimal thing. I will push back on that, but I think that's a good way to frame it. Right. Um, <laughs> because because there's... What did you push back? Well, okay. So I'd say it's interesting to talk about goals in all this. Because on one hand, what is full employment? If full employment, like if you take it to the huge extreme, it's you should like uh, be working 20 hours a day, sleep for four hours. Anytime you're not working... You're wasting. Wait, and that's not full employment. Oh. Well, no, I'm saying it's kind of like I, I, oh, okay, well, I think okay. it's hard to just define exactly what it is, but this is kind of what the Protestant work ethic is in some sense. If you imagine okay. like, if you're ever not working, you are wasting your time. I would say that's not always true. Entering the labor market is not always good. But there is funny, there's like all this, there's this like realm of research that's saying like, okay, we have shareholders in firms. Firms should be optimized. We have CEOs. What is a problem with CEO? They're not working hard enough. They're going on too many golf trips because they're not being accountable enough. What do what can we do to incentivize CEOs to work more hours a day and take less golfing trips? Which is like this weird kind of like <laughs> just like like how do you optimize for your resources? In this sense, the resources your CEO. Uh, I would say like it's interesting to say like my huge goal is I think the labor market really should be less of a requisite from an individual level. I think it'd be great if everyone says, like, should I enter the labor market this week? Well, let me see. Uh, it doesn't seem great for me. I'll wait for next week. Uh, I'd rather, you know, uh, you know, read a book, <laughs> work right. on some projects. Uh, and, like, I really like the way, uh, you know, William Vickery was talking about full employment from a labor market perspective, uh, saying, like, the goal should be, Within 48 hours, anybody can immediately find work that will pay a living wage, which is like, that's really yeah. cool. Because part of that is not only the fact everyone's working, but there's kind of in- like implication, if you're not working, you can return to it easily, which is very different than the world we live in, yeah. which uh, like having a gap in your resume is a death sentence. That's really screwed up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess like when I was talking about full employment, I wasn't talking about it as 
But it's yeah. funny because you're segment. If you are the Starcraft, right, you know, right, right. you know, boss, every person who's like, imagine they're on the beach, you know, drinking mojito or something. It's like you, <laughs> you are, you are a resource. I'm not exploiting right, and that's kind of you know that is from a top down level. Yeah, I guess. I guess when I call you know the potential labor as a resource, I, I assume that if a worker you know is like taking a break or something, yeah, and aren't willing to work, that is not a resource that you can like. I, I I guess you can like you know look at it both ways where you say oh like oh you're wasting time you have to get back to work but I guess <laughs> I I, th- I mean I think this is like it's a big question about uh, kind of you know a more anarchist versus kind of top down socialist model of labor uh, because you know if you talk about like the fact like the the pure top down model is everybody is part of this grand machine. You're going to be told to work if you don't want to. It's fine. The the pure anarchist model is the fact like, okay, you can enter into the system, you know, make as much as you want and kind of like enter and leave as 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 you will. I mean, this is kind of like the, the Proudhon idea mm-hmm. is like everyone should be kind of invited to kind of work, make all their, you know, stuff, save, you know. It's like the fact like then you're not accountable to anybody, you know. It's like you're your own boss. Uh, and like, yeah. you know, he, and he wanted the fact that like, instead of having top down things, you should actually incentivize credit models and just general access to wealth and able to like form cooperatives can just spin up easily. Cause that's very different than the world we live in. Cooperatives have a huge disadvantage as far as credit access than, than traditional firms. Oh, why is that? I think it's because traditional firms, you can actually, you know, you can go into capital markets and you can actually promise people you own a you own a chunk of us as opposed to co-ops are just much less likely to fundraise themselves in that model. They, if if you the employee run, even though they actually have more of a uh, actually viability, a, a better track record in process, they just get uh, less credit offered to them. Would like a public bank be a thing that helps with that? Like I pu- think I think okay. so. Okay. I think that's I mean I think that's a really interesting way of the future. Right. Because it's funny too, like as interest rates are dropping, you know, more of this money should like be opened up to be passed around. Mm-hmm. But will it get to that point? But that's kind of that's kind of off topic talking about okay. kind of where we're dealing with like low interest rate thing. But so on the on the topic of like small scale stuff, uh, you know, I think it, it's interesting to talk about how like most things exist in the world of you know the GDP world. It's mm-hmm. trading around currency, but it's funny when people try to create script and. You know, create economic activity. This is something you you mentioned want to talk about, which is the uh, Capitol Hill babysitting right. co-op. Um, yeah, so like the Capitol uh, Hill babysitting co-op is really interesting, and Paul Krugman brings it up a lot when he wants to talk about like liquidity trap and whatnot. Um, and basically, what happened was, uh, you know, there were all these like you know PMC uh, families in Washington D.C. that wanted to form a you know a small group where they can babysit for each other so that they didn't have to pay for babysitters. Um, and the way it worked was um, each family would get um, 20 scripts and when you joined the co-op. And when uh, you wanted to leave the co-op, you would just have to return your scripts. And each script was worth about one ha- a half an hour. Worth, uh, so, but these are like a lot of like effectively strangers. Right. In, yeah, in they don't know each other. Because like if you had a bunch of friends, exactly. you could just have IOUs. Exactly. But instead, it was a coordin- coordinated effort. Yeah, there's like people- 200 or 300 families like that are doing this in yeah. Washington, D.C. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because... because- so, and, and repeat one more time. It's like, so w- like why do you have to pay if you leave? 
What was the idea behind that? Just to say, like, we don't want people to quit our club. So, well, like, yeah, like if you can imagine, just like a family comes in, they just spend all their scripts and they don't babysit for anybody, right? Oh, okay. Because like, you, you buy in. Right. Do you buy in or do you no, actually get money? You just, out get of the, you just get the twenty scripts for free for joining. So it's completely yeah. outside the economy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then um, what? You know, and you want to you want to make sure you're not being like a complete you know, jerk and just and just exp- like you use it up. You have to actually like keep a positive balance. Yeah. In order to get the privilege of leaving, right? <laughs> Which is kind of weird, but okay. Um, and uh, you know what ended up happening was basically none, no, no, none of the families would spend their scripts at all. Uh, and you know when when you look at it, why? Because because okay, if, if you spend let's say ten of your scripts, you're yeah. down ten, and somebody else is up ten, and now you have to somehow try to find a way to earn back those 10 scripts yeah and everyone's just trying to hoard right this is exactly what happens in a recession right yeah um, <laughs> it's very because like yeah it's like what what do you what do you want here is you want to see a lot of transactions yeah the, the ideal way to run this is every night there's a lot of transactions happening from person to person a lot of babysitting going on but it, what what does each person want they want their own private stash to get bigger and bigger right and that's the wrong thing to incentivize right like yeah. you don't want people trying to hoard the scripts because those are useless. Like yeah. having more of them does nothing for you. Sure. Um, so, you know, this is like the paradox of thrift, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, even in like financial crises, what, this is what exactly what you're saying. People are scared of uh, spending money. And because of that, firms are losing revenue. So they have to lay off people. So there's like less uh, aggregate demand, um, you know, meaning less people spending money. And it's a situation that, you know, just it's like a vicious cycle that just gets out of hand. And this is exactly what was happening before, you know, FDR came to power uh, in 33 for like four years. Yeah. Um, well, it's an old story. When when things look bad, you like you stop working so hard and just say like what the smart thing to do is make sure you have a good stash of yeah. stable currency. And yeah. that's not good. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's not good at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, and but you only you only work. You know, in times of optimism, and when you, you when everyone f- has a bad mood, then you you give up or something. Right, and this is why you need like some kind of like outside intervention to somehow you know uh, you know give people some sense of optimism so that they start spending money. Right. Yeah. And oh uh, yeah, that's kind of what like FDR did, right? Um, and he just created all these jobs where uh, I, I mean. From a modern perspective, it was also just like a waste of people's time, right? Like you would have people digging up holes and like filling them back up again, right? Like it's just better to just give people money and have them spend it. Um, uh, and by doing that, right, like you... <laughs> but when you give people money, like let, let's say there's like a completely labor-based thing. It's like a money is an IOU from other people to give you services. And if like what is the services you can extract from other people? Because it's like I don't need to work for you. I'm rich now. I have all this money. You know, it's like it's like. But what the money's only good because it gives other people services. Right, right, <laughs> it's, right. It's right. weirdly circular. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's exactly what they did with the the babysitting co-op, right? So what they did was, well, it wasn't a government intervention, but what they did was require less money, uh, less scripts when you um, exit the co-op. So yeah. instead of requiring uh, ten, oh, so twenty, they would require ten. Um, and that incentivized people because, you know, now you have this like slack of like 10 scripts that you can, um, spend up to. Yeah. And because 
people are spending money, you're less worried about being able to get scripts. So yeah, you know, you wouldn't <laughs> be scared of like going below ten at that point, right? Yeah, because like there's like a worry. Oh, people are gonna freeload. People are gonna get in and spend it. But because they are actually people are excited about it. If you have thirty now, if you have forty, it's like well, at least I can use it. Right, you know, right, as right. opposed to a completely locked up market. It's actually it's a weirdly it's it's I mean. A different solution would be the Cassell idea of instead every every week, you know, uh, you lose, you know, five uh, percent of uh-huh. the value of scripts you have. I guess it's hard unless it's like in one person's Excel file or something. You need a centralized way to kind of keep track of it, uh, or a decentralized way, which are kind of tricky to do. Uh, but yeah, it's like you want to make sure that people don't just hoard stuff. Yep, and then. Uh, Actually, uh, with the babysitting co-op, the solution still ran, runs into issues because as more, more and more people, like this has been around since the 70s. Interesting. Um, so as more, and it still exists, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and as more and more people exit, like there's this like accumulation of scripts in the, like the economy, right? Because. And that's the debt. The that, debt is their exactly, savings. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm not, in, I don't actually remember exactly what they did about that, um, yeah. but it did cause serious problems. So it did require some kind of like. Um, readjusting of like the scripts that people already had, uh, um, that, uh, which would be like akin to a, like I guess taxation of some form. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's just kind of funny because like, well, what is the goal here? The goal here is you want to make it work, uh, and like if it was a people to judge way, you'd say like you want to pay off the debt, right? And like you wanted the people with the most you know debt to kind of make sure they're serviced. It's like, I mean, on one hand, it's like okay, they objectively have the most IOUs, but on the other hand, it's kind of like. They kind of are just hoarding a bunch of IOUs in a socially unoptimal manner. Yep. Like, kind of, they should be punished for doing this more than actually, you know, uh, praised. Uh, so it's, it is interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I think all you need is, is you have to find these small things and scale them up to the size of the largest economy <laughs> in the world. Yeah. Uh, but well, I think we're, I think we're running short on time. But uh, like, if you're saying like, do you, are you seeing? Are you seeing people more intelligently engaged in MMT as time goes on, or do you think it's just as dumb as it ever was? I think it's just as dumb as well. I've only known about it for two years, but yeah. I think it's just as dumb as it has ever been. I, um, do you think people will catch on, or do you think this is? Um, I think so. I think there's uh, there's enough of uh, like a politi- like it, our political discourse has like moved in that direction enough that I think more and more people will start like trying to understand what they're actually saying like people like AOC and Bernie. Um, I think my I think my you know Galaxy brand thing is I think the real answer for Wargame MT uh, is not because like the jobs guarantee green new deal side is attractive because it is but I think people are still going to test it as much as like the Andrew Yang, you know, just UBI bucks right. is very attractive and I think how are you going to make that work? And I think honestly you know, MMT is the way you make that work. Yeah. It means being very nimble and and uh, on the fly. But I think but, that's that's a future. But Andrew Yang was trying to do that with the fat, right? So like that's he, why he's stupid. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. You know, like it's funny because like that should have been his bag to be the MMT and UBI guy. Is that just? But that wasn't his brand. It yeah. sucks. And yeah, and like he still kept being ignored, even though like I, I don't think like his ideas were that radical compared to like what Bernie and like. No, no he's, he's, he, in a lot of places, he'd be kind of like, you know, a center left, so right, exactly. social, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's what it is. Yeah. But uh, yeah, thanks for, for coming and chatting. Yeah, thanks stuff. for having me. Yeah. yeah. We have been talking to Emil Guliev all about MMT, money, currency, all sorts of stuff. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of the show at the website seatthecat.org. 
this is a presentation of Keith's issue, Stanford. <laughs>